Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The biggest story of the week is the continued unrest all across the country after the death of George Floyd. And this week, all four ex-officers were finally charged in George Floyd's death. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison increased the murder charge for Derek Chauvin. He was the cop to put his knee on the back of George Floyd from third degree murder to second degree murder. And he also charged the other three officers present at the time with aiding and abetting second degree murder. For more on what these new charges entail, we'll speak to Kim Belware, reporter at The Washington Post. Derek Chauvin, the fired officer who was seen with his knee on George Floyd's neck in that viral video, he already was facing charges of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter as of Friday, but the remaining three officers had not been charged or been arrested until today. The charges against Chauvin, there was an additional charge of second-degree murder, and the remaining three officers, uh, all they faced the same charge of second degree, aiding and abetting, unintentional murder. So in Minnesota law, aiding and abetting um, gets you the same sentence as someone who vi- who actually violated the law. So all four of those former officers are facing the same penalty of a maximum of 40 years if convicted. And that's what we're hearing when we hear unintentional felonies? Yes. And something that's also important to note in when they say unintentional versus, um, you know, intentional and those distinctions is it does have an impact on the burden of proof that the prosecutors are going to have to bring. Um, It's notable that the charges against Chauvin in particular, that he's facing, you know, an added charge that's more severe from his initial ones, because if he's convicted, he would be the first white Minnesota officer in the state's history, I believe, to be criminally convicted of killing a black resident. I think even Attorney General Ellison noted this it's hard. These are very hard cases to try. And the Hennepin County attorney, uh, Mike Freeman, he's one of the few prosecutors in the state who has ever successfully prosecuted a police officer. So Ellison was definitely signaling that, uh, you know, this could take time to investigate and that these cases are hard to win. But the fact that they brought the additional second degree charge against Chauvin in particular definitely signals that his office feels like their evidence is strong enough because if they overcharge a case and they can't prove it, those officers uh, are acquitted. Yeah. And that's the difficulty with this. I think that's why the first charge was third degree. They think now that they have more evidence to bump that up to second degree murder. The charges don't appear to require prosecutors to prove that Chauvin intended to kill George Floyd, which is an important distinction. And I know a lot of protesters, a lot of people are calling, you know, saying this should be bumped all the way up to first degree murder. But that's so difficult to prove that he intended to go out there and find him and, you know, kill him and all that. Uh, you know, that that's uh, the, the burden of proof right there would be so great that, as you mentioned, an acquittal could happen right away or something. So that's why they're being very careful with this, with what these charges are. Derek Chauvin, he's still in custody right now. His bail had previously been set at $500,000. It's now set at $1 million. He's still in custody. Have the other officers been taken into custody yet? As of the announcement, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension said that the remaining three officers 
were in the process of being taken in. They already had one in custody, but they didn't specify which one it was. I know that the Attorney General, Keith Ellison, had taken questions about this case and how difficult it, it could possibly be to, to convict them and all. Uh, what did he say about all that? I think he prepared people for the road ahead, which is that these are tough cases to try. I think that he probably, for many reasons, doesn't want to overpromise. He's He's aware of what the the sentiment is in Minneapolis and in Minnesota and around the country towards these. But, you know, he did say that they're also trying to do this case right and they're trying to do this case fairly. So they, you know, he, he's really going to have to balance understanding the anger from the public, but not letting that influence charging decisions because, you know, again, he can only prevail if he can prove what, what they've charged. I think he said that it could be months before they go to trial. He said, I don't know how many months, just kind of laying that groundwork for, you know, this to be a long process. And I know there's a lot of protests, a lot of people still angry. And while these charges are probably welcome, it's not going to quell any of that anger or unrest for, uh, for any time soon. Tell me a little bit more about the charges for the other cops aiding and abetting. What kind of time, if they are convicted, what kind of time could they be serving? So I'm not quite clear on the minimums, but the maximum for that is 40 years. So if they uh, if they do face the maximum, it would be that. I'm not a legal analyst, but I think it is fair to say, looking at other similar such cases that, you know, depending on what the arguments, I guess I would say, in, instead of prognosticating, I'll tell you that it would come down to the arguments that their defense makes. Um, you know, if you look through the reconstruction of videos from the scene, there are definitely different touch points that yeah. all of the officers have. So I would venture a guess that, you know, you'll have some different defenses arise. And, you know, there are four different attorneys. Kim Belware, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Also this week, the family of George Floyd has released the results of an independent autopsy, saying that he was asphyxiated when the now-fired officer Derek Chauvin put his knee on Floyd's neck, and they ruled it a homicide. This info contradicted some aspects of the Hennepin County Medical Examiner report, which now released some updates and also called Mr. Floyd's death a homicide. For more details on the autopsy reports, we'll speak to Paul Walsh, reporter at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Based on that autopsy, not only was Officer Chauvin having uh, one knee pinned on George Floyd's neck for many minutes, the second officer had a knee on George Floyd's back. And the contention by the Floyd family autopsy is this uh, compressed the uh, area of your body where your lungs are and just made it all that more difficult for Mr. Floyd to breathe. From the video that we saw, Mr. Chauvin has his neck on the back of Mr. Floyd for about eight minutes and 46 seconds. They said that Mr. Floyd was unresponsive for nearly three minutes of that. So they're contending that he actually died there rather than later in the hospital when he was getting checked out or, or in, in route to the hospital or anything. They're saying that he passed there and then when he was still in custody by the police officers. There's uh, strong evidence to believe that's true. There was some pulse checking that went on at the scene, and uh, you can hear on one or more videos that there was an expression that there was no pulse. But just because you don't have a pulse at a given moment doesn't mean that you won't have a pulse at a later moment. But I think in the, particularly in the fact that there was never a pulse regained 
for the rest of that evening until he was declared dead, according to this second autopsy, there seems to be room to contend that he died right in that spot. So what we're getting from the new autopsy, the result was a constriction of blood to the brain and air to the lungs. Uh, and there's, these are two doctors that found this in this private autopsy. And this contradicts the criminal complaint and part of the report that we got from the Hennepin County Medical Examiner. The full report uh-huh. is still pending. We haven't gotten that full thing. But in that one, they said that there's no physical finding to support the diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. And they said that uh, his underlying health conditions, possibly uh, coronary artery disease or hypertensive heart disease, and maybe, you know, if he was on any alcohol or drugs, might have also played a part in that. Now, uh, the timing of this uh, discussion is pretty good because the medical examiner, in what appears to be a game of uh, back and forth, released new information within the past 15 to 20 minutes adding these factors is that it was a uh, a cardiac event that worked in concert with the compression put on Mr. Floyd by law enforcement. What the medical examiner continues to stand by is that he was not strangled and or asphyxiated. They're saying that the pressure on the neck played uh, a role in, in concert with putting Mr. Floyd in cardiac arrest and also knew in, in recent minutes is the medical examiner saying that Mr. Floyd was under the influence of fentanyl and that there was evidence of recent methamphetamine use. And then that would explain the potential intoxicants along with the 911 callers informing dispatch that he appeared to be out of it or drunk. So now we have these this private autopsy done. We have the one by the medical examiner, the county medical examiner. How does this work for the prosecution or the defense? Can they submit both and, and use parts of both? Is there or there is the county medical examiner? Is that the one that everybody goes with? That's a great question. Uh, we've seen trials before where additional autopsies are brought into evidence. There are two sides here that can bring evidence before the court, not three, the prosecution and the defense. So one or neither could take what the family's autopsy finds in whole or in part. Also, it could be entered into evidence should there be a federal trial uh, on civil rights violations, or it could uh, work its way to a wrongful death suit, which certainly the, uh, the family has all the control over as far as um, in their attempt to be made whole. All these things play a small role into the overall picture. But as I mentioned, you know, the, the video is hard to, to do away with, uh, you know, when he's the cop is there Correct. on him for so long. And, and you can yep. see you can see him really just kind of slowing down to the point where, you know, he might have been unconscious uh-huh. there on the floor. So, I mean, those are all hard things to square away. Yeah. Now, there's there are other angles of the video that are out there that give us little bits of more information, but I'm not so sure it's one of those ahas by any of them. And the video we haven't seen yet and that we're not going to see for a fair amount of time are the body cam videos of the officers. But the body cam videos from police could well you know, shine a bright light on just how much force was being used to restrain George Floyd. Paul Walsh, Reporter for the Minneapolis Star Tribune, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you. Have a good day. Protests around the country have been going on for about two weeks now, and they have largely turned very peaceful. But when they first started, they were erupting into violence, vandalism, and looting. There was curfew set in a lot of cities, and the National Guard had even been called in to back up police. This past weekend, Los Angeles was hit especially hard with destructive protests and tons of looting. So for more on what happened there... We spoke to Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. You know, the National Guard is only there to be a support mechanism. The National Guard does not have arrest powers. That's got to come down from the top, from the federal government. So what happens is when a National Guard is uh, activated for security purposes like this, they'll act as a support sort of secure the area. They will uh, create checkpoints for people coming in and out of areas that might be blocked off to the public. They'll also guard uh, businesses. They'll, they'll figure out ways to put up secure perimeters so that people can't get into those areas. Mostly they're there to keep people out of areas so that firefighters can get in and clean up messes. Store owners can get in there and clean up their messes, sweep up the broken glass, get the dumpsters off the streets. So basically a National Guard's presence, it's twofold. One, it's the optics. You know, I think the presence of a military establishment in someone's city sort of conveys the message that we're serious and uh, this has gotten really out of control. And the second part is it frees up police officers to go home and get rest, you know, because they were working a lot of overtime. The city was on tactical alert, which means every employee of the department is subject to being called out. And for the first time in 20 years, every sworn officer of the Los Angeles Police Department was activated. Let's move on to a little bit what was happening in Los Angeles. What happened that where things went wrong? The the it all started as a Black Lives Matter protest in a park in the Fairfax district, which is a popular area where there's a lot of shops and whatnot. And then soon thereafter, everything just started getting heated. There was multiple cop cars that were set on fire, vandalism, spray painting, graffiti all over the place. It just went haywire. As you mentioned, we both live in Los Angeles, so we both have seen a lot of these types of protests over the years. I have to say this rates right up there is one of the worst I've seen, one of the most intense, only because this crowd felt more emblazoned. They felt more empowered for whatever reason. They felt like they could get by with more, push the envelope even further. Uh, but you're right. What usually starts out as a, as a very mild sort of peaceful protest in March in Pan Pacific Park, uh, it, it quickly turned ugly. Now, what happens is that you always have this core of agitators, and these agitators come from various groups. Now, in Los Angeles, we know them as the fascist, the fascist groups or the, uh, these other factions of other organizations that are very anti-government. But what they do is they come in and they infiltrate these otherwise very peaceful groups, and all they do is they'll, they'll throw projectiles, which could be frozen water bottles, rocks, sticks, whatever, at police officers, and that immediately changes the whole dynamic because now officers are in a protective mode and they have to get into a defensive mode and that's when things start getting ugly because then when that happens the police show more of an aggressive presence the crowd gets agitated it gets worked up and all it takes and it's sort of this mob mentality once things start rolling it's hard to dial it back it just sort of intensifies and rolls and continues to build and build and build until you get what you saw last night and that's Police cars set on fire, stores getting looted, and just people don't, they just don't even care. They don't care who sees them. They don't care if they're being videotaped. They go in, they loot offices, they, they loot storefronts. It doesn't really matter. And it's only because a group of agitators knows exactly what they're doing. 
Yeah, I'm watching this. It definitely seemed like at least three different types of groups that were there. People that were protesting for the right reasons against police brutality in support of George Floyd. Then it seemed like you said these agitators that were there to kind of get it on with the cops. And then beyond that, even the looters, people that seemed like they weren't even part of the initial protest, driving up in cars, running in a storefront, getting as much as they could and then leaving. So it seemed like there was a lot of different groups out there and the people that you spoke with. What was the sense that you got? Did you were able to speak to any of these so-called agitators that were just open about them just wanting to cause mayhem? Sure. You know, I had situations where some didn't like me being there. They were very upset at me because now the media has become a target. We in the media now have become a a pretty big uh, part of the angst that they're going through. In fact, I had one group tell me that they thought I was part of the problem. I was part of the big issue, the bigger issue. So I step back. I respect the boundary. But I have others that will tell me that they're upset and they're disappointed because they wanted to come down, convey their message. They had signs that say, you know, enough police brutality. Uh, You know, they, they have you know, regular people, just everyday people from all different backgrounds, shapes, sizes, colors, genders, uh, faiths, everyone coming together because they have a common goal. And that is to convey their message that they're tired of police brutality. But then again, I talked to others that they have absolutely no idea what the big picture is. In fact, one guy I spoke with couldn't even remember George Floyd's name. He couldn't remember the name of the guy that got killed by the officer. And that's that's part and parcel to what happens here. It, it attracts people from everywhere, all different types of groups, but it always starts with that core of people who set out, as you mentioned, for all the right reasons, and then it quickly turns ugly. And what happens after that is that the message gets lost. This becomes the story now, the looting, the rampaging, the violence. Right. Steve, I also wanted to ask, because there was a ton of looting, there was a lot of uh, big shops and people, there's a shopping center there known as The Grove, People broke into the Apple store there and to Nordstrom started looting there. But there's also a bunch of smaller businesses along those streets that also got looted. You had a chance to speak some of those to some of those business owners. Yeah. What was their reaction? They were just so disappointed because a lot of those business owners are minorities. And the ones I spoke with last night, uh, I spoke to Armenian, Hispanic, Rwandan. Um, I spoke to all different minorities last night, and they were all so disappointed because they all said, we have all gone through our own discrimination. We've all been mistreated by government. We've all been mistreated by law enforcement. So they understand the pain that a lot of these people are going through and what the protests mean, but they just can't wrap their head around the fact that they, they can't equate trying to convey the message with stealing their merchandise. They just don't understand how that honors the, the memory of George Floyd One guy I spoke with who owns a vintage store there on Melrose in the Melrose Shopping District, they put their life savings into this. They've been there for 10 years, and they sell all kinds of very high, highly priced collectibles closed from back from the 50s and 60s, and his store was completely trashed. I stood there talking to him, and his voice was shaking at times. He, was, he started out very angry, and then his voice started to shake, and it was very emotional for him because the clothes are laying all, all over the floor. There's glass everywhere. They stole his safe. Uh, he said it, the damage and the losses are in tens of thousands of dollars. Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.